I'm Vince. I'm R2. We're two middle-aged guys from the Midwest with opinions on RPGs. Let's get into it. We're going to ruin your games. Oh. What's up, R2? Hey, man, did you know I just took a, uh, like a 23andMe test? Yeah? Yeah, it turns out I'm 100% sick of Euro Fantasy-centered tropes in role-playing games. Me too! Weird! Yes, so that's our topic today. Today we're going to talk about the sort of Eurocentric fantasy tropes and roots of Dungeons Dragons, and, and frankly most role-playing games, that came out of that time period. Yeah. Right, the, the early time period. Yeah, the early time period, absolutely. And, and these these sort of unspoken foundations continue to affect D&D up to today. Sure. Like, if you look at for instance, the classes in the in the fifth edition manual. Yeah, the, there is a clear Eurocentric medieval fantasy perspective that these characters, these classes, and, and these uh, abilities are are written from. Yeah, so so let's get into the history here first. Now, obviously, the Dungeons and Dragons comes out. We've got you know, let's pin it to 1974 if we want to. Arguably, we could go a little earlier. We could go a little later, depending on what you happen to be talking about. But let's just say in the 74 through 81 time period, when it's really becoming Dungeons and Dragons that we would know, right? You have lots of different sort of iterations on the concept in this time period, yeah. and it's driven by a small group of people, sort of two primary figures behind this, which is Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. And a lot of people only talk about Gygax, and I think that that's really a mistake. I don't fetishize Gary Gygax in any way. He, like, I'm, I'm grateful he created what he did and that it was so successful, but in my mind, he only really created half the picture. And Gygax was obviously a war gamer and, a, you know, a historical buff and interested in very much in these sorts of, like, Eurocentric tropes of the medieval world. Right? Arneson did a lot to fill in the blanks that Gygax didn't cover. Exactly. Like, Arneson had much more of a LARPing background, right? So this is where Blackmore and stuff like this comes from. He used to run this big event, uh, or take part in it, eventually run it, where he would actually, in, like, one of their friends' backyards or something, they would set up a little medieval village. And, you know, you're the you're the blacksmith for the weekend, and you're the uh, barkeep for the weekend, and everybody played a role. I mean, it was it was truly proto-LARPing, right, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. And a lot of the role-playing side of what we think of as a role-playing game, frankly, the part that I like more and that has really come to the fore recently comes from Arneson, not from Gygax. Gygax was much more like mechanics and tables and you've got 50 followers going with you into a into a dungeon that you just throw at traps and sacrifice these people you're paying a copper piece a day and the detritus of human life, right? So those two come together to make this now both of them though regardless of the differences in how they viewed the experience both of them had a very eurocentric uh lens through which they viewed this a medieval eurocentric lens yeah they were trying in creating DD, they were trying to create a mechanical representation for a fantastic version of how they imagined european history to be yeah and I should state, it's not as though they pulled this from whole cloth. You know, Gygax famously has the appendix in, you know, the back of the early books that shows all his sources of reading that he looked to for inspiration. He was an extremely well-read guy, as was Arneson. Both of them were, were very, very smart, very well-read individuals. In a time period, by the way, when it was actually very hard to be well-read, 
Remember, all information in the known universe wasn't available in something sitting in your pocket, right? They had to, you know, go to the library, find a book, check it out, read it, make notes. You know, it was like a lot of work to learn things in the 1960s and 70s. Had to pick up books. Right. So they they certainly sourced it. So I, I don't want to say that it's not like they just completely cut it from their imagination, right? But they had sources they favored, they had a lens through which they viewed it, and that led to certain tropes becoming the established foundation of this game. And as you mentioned, regardless of the movement today, and I do just want to say very clearly that obviously today D&D has become more inclusive of different cultures in a very positive way. You've got adventure books like Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel and stuff like that that really highlight other cultures uh histories and myths and magic and stuff like that and that's fantastic i love all of that very much yeah with the the content creation that they're doing now they are doing historically speaking a much better job than they've ever done in the past whether they've reached the point of doing a good job at that is probably for people that aren't us to determine yeah that's that's in the eye of the beholder but as you said the foundational elements that are there are still inexorably Eurocentric medieval tropes. They just are, right? And they're so encoded into the DNA of D&D, they're never going to change. They can't. There's no breaking that out of D&D at at this point. Like, D&D wizards are defined by having these different schools of magic. You're you're writing down formulae in a book. Mm -hmm. It, It is a very... It's a very sanitized version of a of a Gnostic mysticism practitioner. Yeah, I mean, aesthetically, it's a European medieval wizard Merlin concept in a tower, right? Yeah. It's the it's the super smart researcher who who researches archaic formulae and things like that to to uh, you know unleash this magic. Mechanically, it's it's Vancean, right? It's drawn from that. Uh, the Dying Earth series. Yeah, from the Dying Earth series, exactly. Thank Which, you. Check them out. Those books are pretty decent. They are good. But, like, that's what that vision of that thing is, right? And and it's not... You can imagine that... And by the way, you might say, well, yeah, what else would a wizard be? And it's like, well, a, a lot of things. That's the point. <laughs> right. A wizard might be a lot of different things, right? Just think of what you've watched on television and how they define wizards. Okay, in different shows you see, or people who have magic powers. That is all over the shop. Now imagine if you had somebody who was writing from a, like, Mesoamerican or South American, you know, indigenous people's history. How they would have defined somebody who was a spellcaster or magic user, right? It would have looked totally different. It would have had a totally different aesthetic, a different feel, a different general trope to it, right? And, And that would have necessitated probably different mechanics as well. Yeah. Same thing if we went all over the world and picked 10 different cultures. Yeah, exactly. From the wizard to the to the fighter. Like, I think the only one that, that might get a cultural pass is Rogue, just by how watered down Rogue has become over the, over the years. Yeah, because originally it was this, even originally when it was Thief, and it was still very focused on this sort of, I don't know, set of sneaky deaky skills and pickpocketing and stuff like that. I think that, see, some of the classes, I think, do sort of point at something of the human condition. And Rogue always had this feeling of the downtrodden, poor, 
like person who's just surviving by their wits and the the you know the speed of their fingers as it were right and and that is kind of culturally pretty universal right like most cultures have rich and poor people and so that kind of thing occurs so i i even maybe fighter you could argue like okay sure Maybe our image of the thing is more like aesthetically, it tends to come off more Eurocentric. That is to say, it's yeah. a guy in plate mail with, you a know, a sword. shield and a longsword, which is certainly a Eurocentric concept as opposed to any of 50 other fighters it might look like. But but that's also been changing. I don't think that's inexorably wrapped up. Yeah. There. The fighter is a class, not necessarily culturally uh, locked to Eurocentrism. Right. But the weapon list in the player's handbook is sure. absolutely Eurocentric. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So the the tool list laid out before this uh, ostensibly maybe culturally neutral fighter is a bunch of European weapons. Yeah, we could also talk about the second layer of that, which is the incentive structure on that fairly thin weapons list, right? Which is to really utilize a very small select group of weapons that, that prioritize effectively how medieval Europeans fought. You want to use a spear? Uh, okay, I guess. <laughs> Way to make a wrong choice. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Like, why would you ever use a spear when you could use a longsword? Which is which is a wild thing to say, right? Yeah. It's the spear, the historically one of the most used weapons of all time. Yeah. The single greatest warfare weapon right. prior to the gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yet it's like a total loser. Right. As a, yeah. as a as a selection in the in the rules. Yeah. So, OK, we've we've hinted around this, but but let's let's just answer this question. If somebody's listening to this R2 and they say, yeah, but I like Eurocentric Eurocentric fantasy and I like that stuff. Are you saying I'm a bad person for liking that? No, no. I'm just saying you're boring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that for me, after 30 years of being immersed in it, I am looking for more stuff, right? Yeah. I personally do find it boring because I've been playing it since I was 10. And it's not that I, there is nothing innately bad. There is nothing intrinsically bad. If you love medieval history and you love medieval Europe, good for you, good on you. There's zero wrong with an interest in that and with playing in a game that is set with those kinds of tones, undertones and overtones and themes and everything else. Zero wrong. Those stories are still good. They still have meaning. They're still powerful. Like I still, every few years, do a, run, a read through of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Because uh, even though it's it's what nearly all fantasy writing is based off of in one sure. way or another, it's it's really one of the grandfathers of fantasy writing. It's still a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so just to answer the question, no, there is nothing wrong with it. We just are talking about having more because, again, for me, it's just a question of I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. I want to experience other stuff. But let's talk about how bound up this is. Let's talk about some of these tropes because I think a lot of them have become invisible. Absolutely. One that's recently had a sort of a light shown on it with recent book updates and conversations happening in the tabletop role-playing game space is... Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, which is having naturally evil races. Sure. Here are goblins and orcs and hobgoblins and bugbears, and they are naturally evil races. They, it's not that they, it's not that they're just like you and me. They are monstrous. Yeah. They exist 
an antithesis to good people. Yeah. And by the by the nature of their being, they are evil and you should kill them. Yeah. And that's really problematic and bad. Sure. I think it's also just... I mean, obviously they were put in there originally. Like, I want to be super clear when we talk about stuff like this because it's easy for people to mishear what you're saying, right? It is undoubtedly the case that it is very easy to read them as the other, right? And as... Basically, you think about where they live. They live outside of the. They don't. They don't have their own civilization and culture. They live outside of they civilization wander from and culture. Village to village. Yes, and they and they they burn things and create terror and stuff like that. Now, to be clear, there are plenty of others in history that many locals would have viewed like that, right? Yeah. By the way, not just, and I don't mean that only in Europe. I mean, like there has been plenty of times throughout history where other people, other peoples have come into an area as primarily, maybe even initially, and then before settling, you know, raiders and stuff like that who took wealth and then absconded with it to other places. You know, you can go to, like, various migrations of Viking peoples and stuff like that, Saxons coming into into England, whatever. Even uh, refugee movement, uh, people sure. uh, whose homes have been destroyed and they're moving into uh, another people's area just for the chance at a better life. Right. Uh, those people are are vulnerable to being uh, stigmatized as the other, sure, and and attributed these monstrous attributes. Sure, my point is, if you're like a, if you were a, you know, someone that when the when the Vikings came a raiding or whatever, right? You you and 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 started burning down a monastery or something, you probably weren't too concerned about the moral position of of labeling them as the other, right? Like that was probably fairly justified at that point. But also, they weren't thinking in terms of, of race as D&D defines it in that, in that period, right? That's, a, that's no. not a conception they had in their head. And that's, that's one, of the, one of the things that, that D&D has to grapple with is that when you create differentiation between peoples along racial lines and use that as a substitute for culture, right. you run into problems of racial essentialism. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that can be difficult water for, for anyone to, to navigate. Yeah, and this is something they've very much turned away from recently, and I'm glad to see it. You know, things like goblins and orcs and hobgoblins and all these kinds of things now have fully fleshed out and developed cultures, and they're not they're not intrinsically evil or anything like that. To varying degrees of success, like uh, ultimately, that there's still there's a a, a certain amount of uh, like, for instance, anti-Semitic uh, imagery used in conjunction with goblins. And that that's still present in the material, and the the question is how much you can, how much of that bad stuff you can remove without changing the nature of what a goblin is. But that's that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, they're they've gone the right direction. They've done the right moves. I don't feel like in most games, or even in most worlds, and certainly in their default world and beyond. That just by playing an orc, suddenly everybody looks at you askance or wants to kill you instantly or something like that, right? That's just not how it is at this point. The worlds have been have been redefined that like, yeah, sure, of course, there's orcs in town, there's goblins in town, there's, you know, whatever, whatever, right? They they have civilizations and people and motives. They're all sentient creatures with... with Hopes, dreams, oh, desires. Yeah, exactly. Like living their own fully formed individual lives. And I don't have a problem, by the way, with like something being essentially evil when it's a weird supernatural being, just to be super clear about that. Yeah. Like if you're talking about a demon or something, even then it's interesting to have the demon that isn't evil. But but like 
I'm okay with the sort of essential thing because that's not a race in that question. It's not like a sentient being. It's a you you cut open a demon, he doesn't bleed or whatever. He's full of goop or something. Yeah. He's full the, of evil goop. Those are, are creatures functioning as fundamental forces within yeah exactly the, the metaphysical underpinning of the world. Right. It's like an elemental or a or a you know an undead or something like that. Like yeah. sure, whatever. And you you can have a conversation about the the usefulness of having objective good and evil in the game Mm -hmm. but that's sort of out of the bounds of what we're talking about yeah when we to continue the sort of eurocentric thing i I touched on it there just a little bit think of the monsters and the foes and stuff like that like you mentioned the othering and europe and the history of that especially in the medieval period where you had lots of movements of different peoples going around from over the over that course and you had you know others coming in and, and taking over and raiding as well, the sort of monsters that outline it beyond just the sort of uh, those kinds of raiding species, the kind of low level things that were put in the game originally, like no original designer, I hope, I don't think I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, put in goblins and said, like, this is going to be my substitute for this race. OK, I don't think they were I don't think they were consciously doing that. Right. Hopefully not. Yeah, I like I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. No, they're monsters. They're bad. They want to do bad things. And they needed a bad guy for low-level people to go kill in mass, right? And and that's what it is. Fine. Like they had good intentions, whatever, whatever. But the monsters themselves, like the conception of the vampires and ghosts and basic undead and all of the sort of core creatures that you think of that are most tightly associated, even like dungeons and dragons. Dragons is a big part of this game. Yeah. Those are European medieval specifically dragons. The, specifically the Welsh dragon. That that specific culture's dragon. That's yeah, exactly. It was a very specific dragon. It's not uh, a lung dragon, right? Uh, out of like Chinese myth. Uh, it's it's certainly not any. It's not like a feathered serpent creature out of uh, south american myth right like again there's lots of these creatures and yes those do exist in the monster manuals too and there's certainly lots of expansion into just completely fantastical stuff that has no attachment to any historical paradigm yeah but those core things are still there yeah like those are new exotic creatures to encounter not the the sort of baseline foundational dragon that's just presented as dragon right the default dragon, the default vampire, the default, you know, they're they're all very medieval European tropes. Yeah. The European vampire doesn't have to explain what kind of vampire he is. He's just the vampire. The Southeast Asian Penangalon sure. has to explain what, what it is. Yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. You brought up a really, really good one. You do you want to talk about it? I think it's I think it's on your list. It's the one about sort of the assumption of the political systems and and the way the world is. Yeah. Uh, just having the having a medieval European structure of kings and queens and lords and ladies underneath them uh, administering this feudal society is pretty present in uh, the vast majority of of adventure material, of campaign material, especially in like Forgotten Realms, sure. like the campaign setting that is the baseline campaign of of D anD D now. Yeah is it's a story of kings and queens and lords and and having that sort of very european power structure sure not that there hasn't been kings and queens in other places in the world of course there has but the 
the general nobility structure feels much more European than it does to other noble structures. The customs that they go through, the way that they interact with their servants, it, it feels much more European feudalism than, than other cultures that uh, default assumptions. Yeah. You also raised a good point of looking back and the past was, there was some distant past where things were great. Yeah, everything was better in the past. Right, right. Uh, you've got that, you've got that in Forgotten Realms, you've, you've got the Netherese Empire, yep. this uh, hyper-magical, probably Roman Empire equivalent sure. that that reached uh, the heights of, of magical power before their, their hubris and overreach uh, laid them low and now magic isn't as good as magic used to be yeah yeah everything feels very much like it you know the the you can look at it and if you squint your eyes you can see the the shadow of rome and the dark ages and the medieval period and so on and so forth right that 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 there was this trajectory of height fall rise type of situation right that that it's constantly seemed to be underpinning a lot of, especially certainly the early worlds. Uh, and again, a lot of this is changing. We're talking a lot about the roots, not the current day. Yeah. These are, these are historical perspectives on, on previous and, and into the current edition of D and D, but things are changing in a, in a positive direction. But I think one of the things that a, a lot of D and D games still do is having the, the trope of within this, this greater political system having these dark disconnected isolated peasant villages yeah sure like the 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 world you're adventuring in is a land of darkness populated with small points of light Mm -hmm. that you move between sure and that's not how it was really in europe and it it doesn't have to be that way in your D &D game did you know we just found a uh like this wasn't super recent but pretty recently we found a letter that had been preserved from, I don't remember when this was, I, I want to say like the second century CE uh, during the Roman Empire of yep. an Egyptian uh, soldier who had joined, he lived in Egypt, okay? So this is like early hundreds, I think, basically CE, something like that. He, I think he was under Trajan, the emperor Trajan. Whenever that happened, I don't remember. And he joined the Roman military, okay? Now keep in mind, he would have not been a citizen at the time. And he lived in Egypt, in a small village, like a small fishing village on the Nile, okay? So he goes north to Alexandria, takes a ship across to Italy, uh, which gets in a big storm, but he's okay. And he re- hits the port, not far from Naples, where then all the soldiers and, com- and like, these weren't conscripted people. This was a volunteer force. And he was paid for his journey. So he was paid, like, three... Ais, or however you say it. I don't know how to pronounce Roman things. But it was about the equivalent of a year's pay. And he wrote a letter and included some of the money back to his family in the fishing village and talked about, like, his sister and her sister's husband and and wished his parents well and all this stuff. And we found that letter, okay? And so he had gone from a tiny village through a lot of other terrain up the Nile to Alexandria, across the sea, into the uh, into Italy, joined the military, they gave him equipment and, and gear. The cogent part of this is that he sent a letter, R2. Yeah. A letter in the mail. The mail. And this is Rome, okay? And you know what? It got there. A couple weeks later, it arrived in the fishing village, was delivered by hand, because that's how they all were, just like modern mail. 
to his parents who read the letter, kept the letter, and we found it and a couple others because they would write letters back and forth. And the Roman Postal Service was incredibly effective. The ancient and medieval worlds were often smaller and and more connected than than how they're portrayed in in fiction and uh, media. Yeah. The, the having the idea of an isolated village where uh, you got 300 people and nobody ever leaves and nobody ever comes in that just didn't really happen. Yeah, the merchants would travel from place to place. You had entertainment people traveling from place to place. You had farmers who would often go long distances to go, you know, exchange crops in other markets. You had all sorts of things. People who would relocate to different villages after learning their trade, like yep. if if you're learning how to be a carpenter under the carpenter for your for your village, you you take up that trade. You don't immediately set up shop in that same village. <laughs> now we got two carpenters until this guy dies. Right, right. You, you leave. You find some place that needs a carpenter. Right. And things move on. Yeah. Like, these towns were more connected than, than we're portraying. Yeah. But that's the perception of that medieval period and how it looked back, right? It's this sort of like late Dark Ages, early medieval conception that like everything outside of our walls is dangerous and dark and, and full of terrors, right? And, and in, in some editions of D&D, that's been, that's been reinforced and emphasized, Yeah, I think, to, to the detriment of, of good stories to tell. Fourth edition went very hard on this concept. Yeah. And please don't mistake me. It's not that I'm saying there weren't bandits and things of that nature historically and people who would rob you on the road like of course that would happen and if it makes sense for your story sure keep it i'm just saying that the reality of history wasn't that and there's plenty of good stories to tell that don't need this overused trope right you don't have and so i think one of the reasons i wanted to talk about all of this and we should probably you know start winding this up to a conclusion but the thing that that stands out to me about it is you shouldn't feel wedded to any of these tropes. You should feel free to change the game, to set the tropes, to set the assumptions however you want. There's no reason either A, to be bound to a period of history. Like, who cares? This isn't history. It isn't, oh, but people didn't do that in this time period. In what time period? The one where there were dragons flying around and elves? That's not, there is no time period here. Okay, this is an imaginary world, you know, stem to stern, right? And... I just, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see us moving in the direction where, sure, some of these tropes are still there. They can be used. They can be fun. I have no problem with playing in that world. I like the Forgotten Realms quite a bit. Yeah. Right? But at the same time, I love seeing these explorations of other concepts, too, of, of you know, bringing in other base assumptions to how culture works, how the monsters in the world work, how society works, where the friction comes from, stuff like that. You don't actually need a bunch of innately evil races to have there be wars and strife and and challenges that the party has to overcome, especially in a world where you have supernatural monsters as well, right? But but even outside of those things, real humans have seemed to get along pretty well at causing war and strife and challenge with each other. And obviously, we're all just people. Yeah. So just come up with motivations for why the antagonists in your story are doing what they're doing. Don't just say, oh, these people are naturally evil, and that's why we have to kill them. Right. That's obviously too easy. All right, is there anything else we want to say about this one? Yeah, use more guns. That's a fun thing. Guns I are cool. More more, more guns in there, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I. What a great note to end on. We have a whole episode at some point we'll do about that. So, I agree. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, don't forget to give it a rating and a review. Hit that five stars and say something nice. It's always deeply appreciated. Uh, if you've got questions, don't forget there's an email address down below. You can hit us there with questions or you can hit us with future show suggestions. Always love to see topics. That's always very helpful. Uh, if you're interested in going deeper, I have a whole channel dedicated to Warhammer over on, on YouTube under my name, Vincent Venturella. Uh, so go check that out there. But as always, hey, we thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace.